0: Steve here with a quick announcement before we get started. They only happen once a year. Fig Camp and Lemon Camp are live online intensives about how to grow figs and how to grow lemons in cold climates. These are live, they're online, they're small groups and they fill up quickly. Fig Camp is March 18th and 19th, Lemon Camp March 25th and 26th. Grab your spot now, you can find out more at foodgardenlife.com. Now, back to the show. Have you ever wondered whether the original brandywine tomato had pink flesh and potato-like leaves, or did it have red flesh and regular leaves? Well, you can find out today on the podcast. The Food Garden Life podcast today is a rebroadcast of our radio show from the 2nd of September, and we will be talking with Amy Goldman, an expert on melons and tomatoes.
1: Welcome to the Food Garden Life Show with your hosts Emma and Stephen Biggs right here on Reality Radio 101. Listening to the Food Garden Life Show with your hosts Emma and Stephen Biggs. We talk to creative food gardeners and food garden experts who break the rules and make new ones. Emma Biggs is a popular speaker and she's only 15 years old. Emma is the author of Gardening with Emma. Stephen Biggs is the author of the Canadian bestseller. No-Guff Vegetable Gardening, the award-winning Grow Figs Where You Think You Can't, and most recently, Grow Lemons Where You Think You Can't. And now, here are your hosts, the daughter and father duel, Emma Biggs and Stephen Biggs.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Emma Biggs and thank you for hanging out with us today on the Food Garden Life Show. I'm a 15-year-old garden writer and speaker, and I love to grow tomatoes. I'm an extreme gardener who wants the garden season to never end.
0: Hey everyone, I'm Stephen Biggs. Emma and I think gardening is a great way to hang out together, and we're glad you're hanging out with us here today. Our show is all about food gardening, food, and the gardeners who grow it. Have you ever wondered if the original Brandywine tomato was pink-fleshed with potato leaves, or was it red-fleshed with regular tomato leaves? If you're the kind of gardener that loves these details, we'll be finding out today on the show. We've got a great show lined up for you today. A gardener and author whom we have long admired joins us today. Amy Goldman is the author of the brand new book, The Melon, and a book that's held a really prime spot on Emma's bookshelf for a long time, The Heirloom Tomato, From Garden to Table recipes, portraits, and history of the world's most beautiful fruit. Amy joins us from the Hudson Valley in New York to talk about these wonderful books and all about melons and tomatoes. She'll join us in just a moment. And for the fig segment today, I'll take you to Philadelphia to find out from millennial fig grower Ross Raddy what varieties he recommends.
2: Now before we get to our guests, how is your summer going? Mine is going amazing. I've had so many tomatoes coming in from my garden. I'm currently in the midst of tons of seed saving and we've taken a couple of really fun canoe trips and I'm having a really hard time realizing that summer is almost over for me. And we also have some really great news. Now you might remember that on our last radio show we told you that this program won a silver medal of achievement at the 2020 GardenCon Media Awards. Well, at the GardenCom conference a couple weeks ago, it was awarded gold. And I'm also honored to have received the Emergent Communicator Award, which is given to a member under the age of 40. Now, GardenCom is the association of garden communicators that Dan and I belong to. So thanks to all of our listeners who tune in every month and support us.
0: My summer is awesome too. My book, Grow Lemons Where You Think You Can't, which is all about growing lemons in cold climates, won a gold medal as well. As some of you know, we're now podcasting between radio shows, talking to inspiring food gardeners twice a week. So you can tune into that at stephenbiggs.ca or just look for the Food Garden Life show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify and Stitcher. And we'd love it if you keep in touch with us between shows. You can find us hanging out on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook as Food Garden Life. And on Facebook, my own profile is the one with the guy who has kids sitting on a big round table hay bale. You can also connect by getting my free bi-monthly food gardening newsletter at stephenbiggs.ca and when you sign up you get my two online guides, Top 20 Small Space Food Gardening Hacks and Grow Figs in Cold Climates.
2: And you can also keep in touch with me on Instagram at biggs underscore grows or find me at emmabiggs.ca where I'm an occasional blogger and I also sell tomato seeds.
0: And I wanted to give a shout out to Susan in Ottawa, who sent us garden pictures and told us that her daughters, Martha and Daphne, have been reading Gardening with Emma and are enthusiastically growing gardens. So thanks very much, Susan. It really means a lot to us when people reach out and let us know about their successes and joy in gardening.
2: It really does. So thank you. Now, as Dad mentioned, our theme today is melons and tomatoes. Now, this is a pre-recorded show. We're not live in the studio today, though we do hope to be next month, along with our amazing producer Gary and our guest. It today is the author Amy Goldman from the Hudson Valley in New York. Her amazing book, *The Heirloom Tomato: Recipe Portraits and the History of the World's Most Beautiful Fruit*, is a favorite of mine. And my brother Keaton has been going through her newest book, *The Melon*, to choose melons for his garden next year. You can find Amy online at amygoldmanfowler.com and you can also find her on Instagram at heirloom harvester.
0: Amy's book The Melon by the way recently won a silver medal from Garden Com so congratulations Amy and it's a beautiful beautiful book. We've been going through there excitedly looking for melons to add to our garden for next year.
2: And remember that we also post the contact information for each show in the show notes, and you can find that on Dad's website the day after the show goes up at stephenbiggs.ca. And so you can find Amy's information there.
0: And so without further ado, let's bring Amy on the line.
2: Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Emma. I'm delighted to be with you and Stephen. And we are so excited, so, so excited to have you on today. Um, to talk all about melons and tomatoes and all the incredible work that you're doing.
3: Well, I'm delighted. Um, uh, those are two of my favorite fruit vegetables. And uh, now, uh, in the middle of August, it's prime time for both.
0: Oh, yeah. So we
3: can extol their glories and um, savor that rare treat that comes in summer.
0: Well, we were talking just before we started this uh, this show and you were talking about the harvest right now and I wonder if we could just take a minute to paint a picture for our listeners of what your garden with all of the tomatoes and melons looks like.
3: Yeah, so um well, I wish you could see the floor of my dining room because I brought in a haul of watermelons yesterday in there resting comfortably on the floor but I you know have a bumper crop of of watermelons of all stripes you know everything from the the tiny little hybrid yellow dolls up until the the wilson sweets the crimson sweets um and so forth so um and uh, equal amounts of say tomatoes so I'm hurrying around trying to give them away and Eat them and cook with them, but i've got um i I've got a lot of peppers in the garden this year because uh, 'cause I'm doing a book on peppers, not just chilies and all kinds of peppers and mm. um, I'm doing a second book on pumpkins, so I've got some really neat um giant field pumpkins uh on the vine and uh some other and some rarities um uh and so, uh, yeah, there's just everything from yeah, everything imaginable the The garlic, the onions, and the shallots are in the the potatoes are have been harvested. The corn is ready as of yesterday. Um, so you know it's it's really high tide in in the garden. I have three different gardens uh, they're about um I'd say an acre and a half in size altogether. Wow. Um and I you know I, I do a lot of seed saving uh and a lot of food processing and a lot of giving of stuff away. So um uh yeah this is um a glorious moment.
0: <laughs> and I have to ask the peppers and the pumpkins for your upcoming books. Is that a bit difficult because you probably have to photograph them before you can eat them. So you must be sitting there anticipating eating these, but you can't touch them until you have photographs. Is that right?
3: Well, yeah, that's true. Um and now I've been working on those the, the the new squash or pumpkin book and and pepper book now for um 9 or 10 years. So I'm almost done mm-hmm. with um all of the photography and taste testing and field notes and and all that so um uh the good thing is uh there's still a lot to go around i mm-hmm. i grow multiples of every variety um each year so uh but if i have a perfect specimen i see one in the garden and you know i'm a a competitive vegetable grower from way back so when i see you know a blue ribbon in a potential blue ribbon in the garden I'm going to cut it carefully off of the vine. I'm going to try to preserve the foliage and the beautiful sheen i if uh, Victor Schrager who's my wonderful photographer, isn't able to come come photograph right away I can hold them the specimens in the refrigerator for a little while um. And then generally, like, when we were doing the melon book, we would just photograph the specimens and then, you know, have a feast afterward. <laughs> oh, um, wow. Yeah, so th- it's not, I can't say it's a real sacrifice. And at this point, after doing this for so many years, it's, you know, it's kind of routine. Uh, right now we're doing, we're photographing potted peppers uh, in the greenhouse, um, so there'll be a whole new section on potted peppers and how to grow them. That's very different from the other books that I've done. Um, and they're so they're so beautiful and of course edible as well. So I, I'm busy with um, photo shoots now also. Um,
0: well, I want to ask you more about melons. And I should tell our listeners your book The Melon is just. Beautiful, and I get hungry just looking at the pictures in there. I gave it to my son Keaton recently, and he's over the moon excited because he's planning to grow all sorts of new melons next year. So I think...
3: Marvelous. I'm so glad to hear that. That's just what I, you know, want, hope to do is inspire. And, you know, I wrote the book for people like your son Keaton, you know, mm. so that they could, you know, find something appealing and then try to grow it at home and preserve it, of course.
0: And I saw somewhere, Amy, maybe it was the press release that said you spent eight years making that book, is that right?
3: Well, it was more like nine years. Wow. <laughs> but you know what I do, It. well I have the luxury of time, so that is, you can't grow everything in one season for a book. It's just impossible, you know, because there's the, the inevitable crop failures and then you know the new thing comes along or something you missed or you want to redo um so yeah i'm just taking my good old time and you know i can say to you that both of the 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 squash and the pepper book to come um i they're pretty much the data is collected 99% and then what i do is after i've gotten to know these plants intimately then I can set out and do, start the research and writing process. So that always comes last. And I'm about to launch, I, it's sort of that threshold effect, you know, I'm just launch over the threshold into the process in the fall when the season is over.
2: Could you tell us how you got into growing melons in the first place? The press release says that they're your lifelong love and calling. So when did you start growing melons? Yeah, well, I
3: would say when I I um, had my first taste of delicious melons when I was a child at home, my parents were both melon maniacs. My mother loved watermelon. My father loved green flesh cassava. And both both of my parents' families had originally been in the food business. So we had a family atmosphere and table that just celebrated fresh produce. And that's where I became addicted.
0: <laughs>
3: ah, yeah, to melon and watermelon. Um, you know, in my first melon book, that was my first book published in '02. I, I think I started the book by saying that melons are the dessert course only better. So I'm talking about sweet melons, but you know, they're just so delicious and you know, good for you. Better than having a Twinkie or something like that if you need a sugar rush but anyway not all melons are sweet of course there are some that are bland and like cucumber and some you know for that are used for other purposes yeah no it is a lifelong love and calling and uh what can i say they speak to me they're um so i had to revisit it because in the intervening years from 02 to 2019 i had just you know I had grown grown and learned a lot more about melon and watermelon and was able to take advantage of recent research findings and um and all that so but there won't be a third book on melon.
0: <laughs> uh. well Amy yeah. I have to tell you my own favorite at least to date maybe after we grow some of the melons you talk about next year it'll change but my favorite so far is the Charente type melon just the the smell and uh, the color and how do those rank in your books
3: oh yes well that's interesting I love them too there's Charente melons for our audience are, um, are really true French cantaloupes they have they're different from the modern or you know heirloom American muskmelons that we mistakenly call cantaloupe Mm. and those American sorts are generally netted they have a musky orange flavor sometimes they're green fleshed um and some and many many of them are superb but the the French charente type are generally you know those are smooth skinned and they have a special flavor and aroma wonderful orange dense flesh in fact even there was one melon that got away that I wasn't able to put in the book that is a lunaville l-u-n-e-v-i-l-l-e it's an old French cantaloupe um I had difficulty growing it earlier it's pretty rare it had been in commerce offered by one seed company in the U.S., but it wasn't true to type. So I received seeds from a a seed-saving friend in France and grew grew the melon this summer successfully in isolation from Mm. other melons with which it could cross so that I could preserve pure seed. And just about an hour ago, I sliced one open to extract the seeds and, and tasted its luscious, dense, French cantaloupe flesh. Just sublime. So maybe I'll post that on on Instagram because that is really worthy of attention. I love the I'm with you, Stephen, totally. The Charente, the French cantaloupes are superb dessert melons.
0: Okay, so Lunaville and we'll watch your Instagram for a picture.
2: Okay. Now, after hearing you talk all about these melons and just looking through your incredible book, there's no way that anyone could not want to grow more melons. So for people who want to get started, what are some of your top tips? Yeah, so melons can
3: be grown in the most areas in the U.S., but they in certain areas they do need a little coddling, you know. So you want to be mindful of, you know, how many days, how long your growing season is. Uh, If you're like me and you're in zone five and the length of the growing season is 120 days or less even, um, you'll want to start your seeds inside. It's always good to. I don't um, recommend uh, direct seeding the melons in the soil uh, in the garden because germination is kind of iffy. You want to try to control it. You know, do your research and pick the varieties that you think you might enjoy and that will uh, bear fruit in your season. I transplant them out about three or four weeks after seeding them, and I really baby them. I plant them in black plastic mulch, you know, uh, and cover them with uh, spun polyester row covers just to give them a little uh, protection from drying winds and the cold and the insect predators. Uh taking those covers off a few weeks later and just letting the vines sprawl and flower. And if you're growing on a mulch, you will you need to tack down the vines and just water judiciously and wait for the harvest to come in. There's a heck of a lot more information about how to grow them in in the melon in the book.
0: But it sounds as if creating a warmer microclimate is a big part of what you're doing then with that plastic mulch and, and your fabric that you put over them. You're really working to make your season longer and warmer. Is that right?
3: That is exactly right. So melons, and when I say melon, I mean melon and watermelon, They, which, you know, they belong to two different species in the Cucurbitaceae family of plants, but their their growth habit is the same. So Days in the 80s, nights in the 60s. That's ideal. You know, they can still tolerate warmer temperatures. Um, in fact, when you're germinating the seeds, you want to keep the soil temperature really warm in your in your greenhouse or on your using a gr- uh, heat heat map that to uh, ramp up the soil temperature to about 85, 90. And uh, the th- the other thing you know, for novices in melon growing to know is that these are really rampant vining plants. If you, you know, so they're space hogs, but there are certain varieties that have shorter vines. So you will need to dedicate a space in the garden in full sun, which uh, is important. Same thing for tomato, of course. So they just lap up the warmth.
0: Amy, what about uh, melons or, or melon growers that have an interesting story? I'm sure you've talked to a lot of different melon growers in all of your seed saving. What are some stories that stand out in your mind?
3: Well, there are so many. <laughs> I could almost just flip my book open. And here I uh, just flip my book open to Ford Hook Gem. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've ever grown that. That's um, no a wonderful... American musk melon with a green flesh that is, let me just read you a little bit. A rush of superlatives comes to mind when I envision Ford of Gem. This is a melon that's easy to love, looks, tastes, and pedigree combined to make it the winningness. And uh, I go on and on um, about it. It, it. It's superb. It was introduced by Burpee. Uh, in the 1960s, it, it is the product of two um, important heritage of uh, varieties, and then somehow it was dropped by Burpee some years later and lost from commerce. recently you know, and then maybe in recent years offered uh, and then dropped again. So it became really endangered. Now I'm happy to report that the Seed Savers Exchange will be reintroducing Fort Hook Gem commercially in its 2021 catalog. So I'm so excited about that.
0: Oh, that's great.
3: Just too luscious and good to be lost.
0: And are there other uh, favorite stories uh, uh, or people with stories related to melons that come to mind?
3: Uh, Well, I love the Crimson Sweet, and I've got a, a, a bountiful harvest of Crimson Sweet in my house right now. So the book has commercial heirlooms and also a family heirloom. So watermelons like Crimson Sweet, which are just lusciously beautiful, it cries out to be eaten and enjoyed, um, were bred, you know, in um, public breeding programs. So that's really important because that's um, going the way of some heirlooms, other heirlooms these days. And Crimson Sweet might be the most popular watermelon on earth. And, well, an heirloom doesn't have to be rare to be an heirloom. It's just, you know, uh, open-pollinated standard variety that breeds true from seed so that the seed can be passed along to the next generation. And it was bred by Charles Hall at Kansas State University, um, introduced in the 1960s. I have a personal connection to this, uh-huh. This um luscious watermelon through my husband, whose grandfather uh great grandfather uh was involved with the breeding of one of the parents of this special watermelon there are so many you know there are maybe from the most highly developed you you might say crimson sweet to maybe the the least highly developed watermelon in my book, and that's a. Named for the um, the tribe, uh, the Arikara tribe of North Dakota. It's uh, probably one of the earliest to mature in my garden, and it, it's so primitive that um, you know experts who I've shown it to uh, say, "Well, that it's it's conceivable the story uh, that the Spanish introduced it to the U.S. is is uh, possible." It has a pale pink flesh, but most of all. It had, you know, will contain over. It's small, and it, it will contain over a thousand seeds in it. Wow! Um, black seeds. Um, I don't know how the Iroquois used it in cookery, but I know that the seeds are the most nutritious part of of melons. Okay, yeah. so they probably use them in cookery or medicinally. Um, anyway, it seems that this um, melon, this Iroquois, was the one that. Actually was seen by Lewis and Clark on one of their expeditions, um, and so the Oscar Will Company introduced it, and uh, it's come down to us today, so it really has an illustrious history.
2: yeah, and there are so many more in your book there are so ma- there are so many I
3: could you know well, I'd love to tell the story, so the all of the the melons featured in the book are really the cream of the crop. Um, over the years, I've grown many, many hundreds of varieties. And so uh, these are the best horticulturally, um, from a taste perspective. I mean, their um, they're flesh quality is superb. Um, and uh, most of them have interesting histories, very interesting histories. And I, I love doing the research on them. And so all the details about... Um, you know, uh their history, their their growth habit, their uh, flesh quality can be found can be found in the book and as well I've got, you know, a lot of wonderful recipes in the book as well that feature the heirloom melons.
2: Well, I wanted to ask you next, since you grow so many melons, what do you do with them all? I'm sure you eat a lot fresh, but do you have any favorite recipes as well? Yes. <laughs> Funny you should ask. Just the other day,
3: I made this burrata and green melon salad, with, mm. uh, which was superb um, with with toasted cumin and basil. Um, there's And then last night I made, or was it the night before, grilled tuna skewers with celery, green melon, and olive salad. So that's really great. You know, People are getting really inventive with melon these days. Uh, It used to be that you just ate it fresh, or, you know, traditionally uh, in France, for example, one would cut open a a Charente melon, scoop out the seeds, and pour in some port for dessert. Or in Europe, it was very common just to dust your melon with uh, ginger, powdered ginger, or paprika, salt, or sugar. And, um, you know, there are still fans. I mean, it can be as simple or as elaborate as, as you want. But melons are meant to be shared. They're meant to be shared in season. Their shelf life is is short, so, you know, you got to make haste. And But, it, you know, it's a fleeting pleasure that is uh, so delicious. Uh, there are certain melons that have a longer shelf life. So watermelons, for example... Can hold, you know, for about a month in good, mm-hmm. good form. Certain kinds of melons, like the Spanish and Portuguese uh, cassava melons, have a very long shelf life, and you know, even into the months, depending on how they're stored, whether they're refrigerated at the right temperature and humidity. Um, and those are the sweetest melons of all. The sweet melons of um, originated in central asia okay Uh, and that is an area that allowed the expression of sugar you know because they need a long time on the vine to develop the sucrose so um those are a challenge for most melon growers uh, except for those say in california and um areas where there's a very long hot growing season with no rain or very little rain and uh, that will allow those cassava melons to really become perfection, like the crane melon. Um, say um, uh, raised by the Crane family in Santa Rosa, California, for many uh, generations, is a beautiful. It has a beautiful freckled skin and a luscious sort of um, sherbet-like an orange sherbetty kind of taste. Yeah, so uh, there's there's many different kinds of melons in my book. I don't I think there are ten or eleven different horticultural groups. So you know the Chinese, the Japanese, uh, Koreans have adopted, have grown for many years melons just used for pickling, salt pickling. Okay. Um, they're not eaten raw, but they make great pickles. And then there are sweet dessert melons that are very small and crisp. Uh, grown in the far east, that are pretty much unknown to most Americans, but they're easy to grow and they're really early. And that is a; those are great crops for for uh, the the home gardener who has just a little bit of space, not enough space for the you know thirty foot long watermelon vines. But mm-hmm. um, they mature they mature early and they don't take up a heck of a lot of space. So. Um, there are also, for those who are short on space and short on time, there are the carousello melons of, um, of Italy, and they are sort of a cucumber substitute, but the earliest of all. They're amazing.
0: Well, I, I guess all I can say to our listeners is you need to look at the book. It's wonderful. I wanted to change gears a little bit, Amy, and before we get to tomatoes, because Emma will hog the show from there on in, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work in seed saving, because I know that's a particular passion of yours. Can you tell us what you do and and how you got into seed saving?
3: Yeah, so uh, long ago and far away, I guess, I, by the time I, let's see, so I live on a farm in the Hudson Valley of New York. And by the time I arrived here 30-plus years ago, I had been gardening half my life, but I had never saved a single seed, and I knew nothing about heirloom vegetables. And then I read a couple of books that enlightened me, and one was by Rosalind Creasy, Cooking from the Garden, Uh. and one was by... Harry Fowler about, it was called Shattering, Food Politics and the Loss of Genetic Diversity. And um, I realized we're in the middle of a mass extinction event in agriculture, that there were also these wonderful varieties out there that I knew nothing about. So I started reading, I became a member of Seed Savers Exchange, which is the nation's premier nonprofit seed saving organization uh, based in Decorah, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as a member, I, you know, became part of a network of backyard growers and orchardists, amateur breeders, professional as well, who are just trying to keep the rarest of the rare alive in their backyards and orchards. And it became a way of life for me. Uh, here I am today, many years later. But uh, for for a long period of time, I was on the, I served on the Seed Savers Exchange board. Versus vice chair, then chair, and uh, now I, I I serve as a special advisor to them. Okay. Yeah, so they publish a you know a range of wonderful educational materials um, for the novice seed saver. One, if I might plug, is the Seed Garden. So everything you ever wanted to know about how to save seeds of important vegetable crops. Uh, can be found there. Yeah, it it doesn't uh, instruct it, it. You know, doesn't instruct you on growing techniques, but the seed saving aspect per se, and it's really straightforward. And it's 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 the bible of seed saving.
0: Okay, good. And we'll put that up with the show notes for our listeners too. If you, right. if you want to to get that name, then we'll put that there. Well, I think I'll pass the mic over to Emma here because she's chomping at the bit, Amy, to talk all about tomatoes and and we always have a tomato segment in the show so today's special because our guest is a tomato expert who's inspired us so with with that here's emma
2: well i have to say amy your book is just incredible for anyone who likes tomatoes they have to check it out it's so amazing thank you very much the heirloom tomato from garden to table oh it's so good and there are a ton of different varieties in there uh, that you talk about. So I'm curious to know, you said that the melon book, it took you nine years to write and collect all that information. How long did it take you for the tomato book?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. See if I can remember. In, in a way, I've been preparing for it all my life because I've been growing tomatoes since I was a teenager. Okay. Um, and I even say in the beginning of the book, that I felt like I had tomatoes in my blood. <laughs> because my cousin, Myrtle Tilly Ehrlich Lewis, who was a cousin to both of my parents, believe it or not, uh, was known as Tilly of the Valley, the woman who introduced the San Marzano tomato to the San Joaquin Valley of California and built the world's largest tomato cannery when experts said, oh, it couldn't be exported and grown, you know, exported from Italy and grown successfully in the United States, you know, they had the wrong terroir and and all that jazz, but anyway, she was a hero to, to my parents and to me and inspired me, though I never met her, always heard about her and ha- her exploits with growing the San Marzano, which is the most important industrial tomato of the 20th century because it's, it's you know, it's the, it's the classic plum tomato and it's been bred into um, pretty much every other plum tomato ever since. We're talking about, you know, an introduction date of the 1920s. Yeah, I always felt like a, a, an affinity for t- tomato dim.
2: <laughs> wow, so you really do have it running in your blood then. Yeah, yeah. How many plants, how many tomato plants do you grow each year?
3: Well, while I was um, writing and researching and, uh, and trialing for the tomato book, you know, I had uh, many, could could have been 500 varieties during some of those years. But wow. um, now, well, look, I'm just growing now for eating and enjoying. So I would say I've got about 100 varieties in the garden now you know a lot of my favorites I don't know about your area but it, it's a really good year for tomatoes here so uh generally um around the third week in August in the mid Hudson Valley the cherry tomatoes come in followed by the the small slicing or cocktail tomatoes and then the beefsteaks and, and now um and now the um the paste tomatoes, the elongated paste tomatoes. So uh, a natural progression, and um, there's always something something to eat <laughs> and enjoy. This year I did grow quite a few early types to see if I could get something to mature, and by end of June I, I failed, but not by, by too many days. Uh, there are some wonderful hardy tomatoes that maybe are overlooked in some quarters. I'm I'm just thinking of bison and golden bison. They were bred in the 1920s by Albert Yeager for the quote-unquote northern housewife, who, you know, people who live uh, in the northern Great Plains where conditions are rough and it's really hard to mature a tomato. So, I grew those in wall of walls of water they're still producing. they're the most productive tomato around um wow. at least in my garden this year and wonderful, early and prolific so if they don't you know you know if they're not of the same quality as say table quality as say Ford Hook first or or um or or burpees globe thing you know globe tomatoes like those Then all you need to do is put a sprinkle of salt or sugar on them and they're just fine and they're great for processing yeah there's also a, a great diversity in size shape color uh flavor in in tomatoes that uh makes it endlessly fascinating
2: in your book you talk about in a lot of the different varieties and all the all the different diverse ones and for each variety, you go into great detail on every aspect of it, from color and shape to size, to the bricks reading and the origin and where people can find it. So when you're deciding which tomatoes are your favorite and which ones you like the most, which aspects matter the most to you?
3: It's kind of um, a myth that heirloom tomatoes are ugly. You know, I think... Um,
2: I agree with you on I, that I really one.
3: do think it's a myth. Some of the the old commercial varieties are you know prone to cracking and all that jazz but and if you leave them out on the vine too long they get really cracked and awful looking but I you know appreciate beauty I appreciate beautiful fruit um I appreciate novelty and um and most of all you know the table quality is it high acid is it high sugar Is it, can it be used, you know, how can it be used in cookery? So all those things that, you know, in addition to the, to the wonderful, um, folklore surrounding and the, surrounding the, um, the varieties or the, you know, the, I'm fascinated by the, you know, how, uh, modern breeders or have been breeding and improving different varieties over time. And then, um, in the heirloom tomato from garden to table, there's it's sort of an homage to the Seed Savers Exchange um, and its so members who have done so much to preserve heirloom tomatoes um, over the years. And so um, it, it really, you know, we owe a debt of gratitude to our forebears who who developed and selected and saved and shared seeds the next generation it's a beautiful thing that that seed saving chain and now we're the great beneficiaries of all this wonderful produce yeah and i i am i tell you i'm sure you're thrilled to see that there seems to be a resurgence in vegetable gardening these days and that just warms my heart <laughs>
2: Mine, too. I'm just thrilled. It's amazing that so many more people are excited about it. Yeah,
3: and for good reason. I mean, hey, the payoffs are almost instantaneous. And I I do, maybe I said somewhere in the tomato book, but, you know, gardening and growing tomatoes really brings joy. It's just a joyful enterprise, especially during this difficult season of pandemic.
2: I'm curious to know what what your there's lots of different flavors when it comes to tomatoes Some are sweeter and some are fruitier Some are more acidic, almost sour What is your favorite tomato flavor? What oh, do you goodness. find most appealing?
3: You know, I, I think the cherries The cherries have, are the sweetest and have the highest You know, mouth-watering kind of uh, acidic quality um, So cherries are definitely favorites not all cherries are sweet, however, but most of them are. Well, you know, all these tomatoes in my book are favorites, so I don't know if I could choose just one. But I, you know, I like meaty, um, well-colored flesh uh, that's not pithy. But you know, and I, I in the book, and I, I talk about Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter tomato. I don't know if you've ever had that, mm-hmm. but in there, I say something to the effect that which is a big beef, pink beefsteak tomato developed by Radiator Charlie Biles of West Virginia in the 1930s. And how did it get this name? Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter. He was a radiator repairman whose shop was located at the bottom of a steep incline in Logan, West Virginia. And he waited there for um, trucks with busted radiators to roll back down. But as a sideline, he was breeding this special tomato, which is apparently a cross of, I think, three or four different pink beefsteaks. And he sold the plants in the 1940s for a dollar apiece to pay off his $6,000 mortgage. That's the name. But eating a thick, juicy slab of Radiator Charlie's uh marbled with white like fat is like having a last steak supper before you die and go to tomato heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, there's nothing like a thick juicy slab of beef steak tomato.
1: Oh, yeah. Um
3: and we're, you know having a lot of tomato sandwiches around here right now. So and I, I mean I love the you know I love the the paste tomatoes, um Or, you know, we do a lot of cooking and canning and freezing. So, I mean, it's almost um, soup and sauce and curried meatball time here.
2: (laughs) I think Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter, I think that's one of the most famous tomato stories out there that a lot of people know. And the other day, someone asked me a question. They said, if the world was ending and you could only save one tomato variety, what would it be? And I don't know what my answer to that would be, but would yours be Radiator Charlie's?
3: Um, gee, that's an interesting question. Well, I'd say it would be the San Marzano. It's so practical. Um,
2: okay. Yeah,
3: I mean for cookery,
2: yeah. It's amazing that your answer—you knew your answer so fast. Well, oh, I, I that's I just choose. the first thing
3: that came to mind. It's just—it's um, so useful in cookery and so important. It's sort of a you know rectangular shape. Fits perfectly in a can. I mean, this is the Italian canned tomato of choice. You know, what would we do without you know tomato sauce,
2: oh, yeah. soup,
3: and all that jazz? So no, I I well, thankfully, Emma, I don't have to choose because we are so lucky to have the great diversity that we do. Um, and yes. it's up to each person to pick their their favorites. You know, their When grown in different locations or in different climates, from year to year, even in the same garden, there are going to be variations in taste and texture. So uh, what may be good in one year may not be so good the next year. But all are to be enjoyed. And there's nothing in the world like, like a homegrown tomato just ripened in full sun and there's nothing like it.
2: There isn't. And going back to Mortgage Lifter for one second, I just wanted to tell our listeners that if they haven't checked out the book, they should because you'll learn something new. I learned that there's actually, well, I counted 17 different strains of Mortgage Lifter listed in the book, and I just thought that was pretty cool.
3: Well, it it really is. You know, yeah, most people, you're right, most people just think there's the one. But it's interesting to note, too, that um, Mortgage Lifter is a term that was used, you know, way back when um, to designate um, cash crops that farmers uh, would grow or anything else that would bring in a little extra income so that they could pay off their mortgages. So it's not Mm -hmm. just tomatoes that can be mortgage lifters. It could be other crops or other, you know, other things that bring in extra income. Yeah, there's a proliferation of uh, wonderful mortgage lifters uh, growing Quisenberries this year. It's great. Uh, Mullins Mortgage Lifter, those are top notch. And um, people become a member of Seed Savers Exchange. They will have access to seeds because I offer seeds for those varieties. I don't know if they're available commercially right now, I haven't checked. But, you know, there are probably, there are many, many hundreds of tomato varieties available through membership in Seed Savers Exchange um, and that are not commercially available. And they're still being saved, you know, in home gardens everywhere. Yeah. They're just too good to be lost.
2: Yep, and that's how you end up with all these great tomato varieties from being passed down from generation to generation.
3: Exactly.
2: Now, I have one last question for you in your book you talk about so many different aspects of tomatoes as i mentioned before and of course some things are things that you observe like what they taste like and look like and other things you have to research a bit about so what was the research process like for the tomato book? Was it going through old seed catalogs or did you contact old, older tomato growers to get the stories from them? What was that like? Yeah,
3: I, I, I said maybe even in the book that doing the detective work was half the fun of writing that book. And uh, yes, in fact, I did interview uh, many seed savers uh, who shared their stories. I did uh, look in old seed catalogs. I Through all of the annual yearbooks and other materials from the Seed Savers Exchange, I took advantage of um, help from uh, various talented librarians in several different libraries, including um, a librarian named Sherry Vance at the, the Ethel Zoe Bailey Horticultural Catalog Collection at Cornell, uh, she was instrumental in helping me to determine the um, introduction date of of the red brandy wine and actually its horticultural characters because it, it, there was some confusion surrounding whether the original brandy wine was pink fleshed and potato leafed or red fleshed and regular leafed. This is just something that only a gardening nerd would care about, but I care about it because I'm a gardening nerd. And
2: uh, and what is the answer to that question? The answer
3: is that the original, as introduced by Johnson and Stokes of Philadelphia, was uh, red fleshed and regular leafed. But
2: wow! Now
3: the um, Suddeth brandy wine, which most people, you know, also know and love, they're both great. It's pink fleshed and potato leafed, and that was um, came down through um, Doris Suddeth of Tennessee. And um, I was able to make contact with her family and, you know, extract some stories about how she served them. Anyway, so there's just a proliferation of um, wonderful stories and wonderful tomatoes. So yeah, just, um, just reaching out and just asking people the right question and of course, that um, required a lot of time, but I, uh, as I said, I really enjoy doing that. Uh, I will do the same for Peppers and the next squash book. And I look forward to that process.
2: So for listeners who want to know more about your upcoming Pepper and Pumpkin books, where can they stay tuned? Where should they follow your work?
3: It's a little early, but if I have anything to share, I certainly will. Uh, on Instagram or on my website. But yeah, we're we're a ways away from publication of those.
2: Well, we're all, we're all going to be holding our breath oh. waiting for those. <laughs> so-
0: and I hope you'll join us again once those books are out and we can go in to dig into them.
2: I
3: would love to do that. It's just been such a pleasure speaking with both of you.
2: Yeah, it's been great t- speaking to you, Amy. I know I learned so much, and I'm sure our listeners did too, And I'm just so excited to get back out into the garden Yeah, me too.
3: So enjoy, uh, be happy, be healthy, and um, share the
2: bounty.
0: Thank you, Amy. Okay,
2: thanks, Amy. Bye-bye. That was Amy Goldman, author of The Melon and the Heirloom Tomato Recipe, Portraits, and a History of the World's Most Beautiful Fruit. You can find Amy online at amygoldmanfowler.com, and you can also find her on Instagram at heirloomharvester. Remember we also post contact information in the show notes which go up on dad's website stephenbiggs.ca the day after the show.
0: This is the part of the show where we talk about figs and a quick announcement my newest book Growing Figs in Cold Climates 150 of Your Questions Answered is available for pre-sale on my website. You can pre-order now for a special price on shipping at stephenbiggs.ca. Now today In the Bigs on Figs segment, I chat with Ross Raddy in Philadelphia, and Ross has joined us before on the show to talk about his gardens and about his passion for growing figs. You can find him online at figboss.com, and on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, he hangs out as Ross Raddy, R-O-S-S-R-A-D-D-I. You can also tune into our podcast from mid-August of this year to hear Ross talk about his amazing vegetable garden. So, now here is my chat with Ross about great fig varieties for new fig growers. Hey Ross, it's great to have you back on the radio, and thanks for joining us for the Bigs on Fig segment.
4: Thank you for having me, Steve. It's nice to join you again to talk about figs. You know, I love my figs.
0: I know. I've been watching some of the great videos you're putting up, and and you've got so much going on with your figs. So, uh, well, I thought today... Maybe we could just quiz you a little bit about varieties for people who are getting into figs for the first time. Some, some top varieties. Do you have some varieties you can share with
4: us? I do, Steve. Um, there's three varieties that are really the standards that I like to use to compare all my other varieties to. Because you need a benchmark, right? If you're going to have all these different varieties that exist, and you're going to trial them. You need to have something to compare them to. So for me, my top three that can do well just about in any climate, all over the country, all over Canada for the most part. Well, not all over Canada, but for most of southern Canada, you guys can grow these three varieties, which are R.U. Are Chicago, Ville de Bordeaux, and Celeste. Okay. And uh, Celeste really is a fantastic – I think it's probably – in my opinion, it's really one of the best because not only is there just your standard Celeste, but there's also many different types of Celeste, and people have really been breeding Celeste, believe it or not. So Louisiana State University really went crazy with uh, breeding their breeding program in the 50s, and what they used in their breeding program was Celeste. So you can imagine a fig that does well in the south in very humid, rainy conditions is probably going to do well in a lot of climates throughout the, uh, throughout the world. So it's, uh, it's also quite early. It has the perfect shape. And I find that uh, that shape really aids well with its ability to kind of shed rain, uh, to not split. It doesn't crack very often. It's a smaller variety. And uh, most of the smaller varieties I find, the smaller figs, do really well in humid places. The bigger figs, for whatever reason, just seem to struggle often with humidity. and They tend to split more. They tend to maybe even have more cracks. The shape of the fig really goes a long way. Um, so Celeste is really a standard heirloom. It's so old. It's well adapted. It's common, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. could find this thing anywhere. Celeste, again, is just the old standard heirloom. It's been around forever, and it has so many mutations or sisters and brothers at this point like if you think about all the breeding right there's all the LSU figs so my personal recommendation you could kind of go into other these as well as LSU Tiger LSU Huye LSU Champagne, LSU Purple uh, LSU Purple's great for those of you guys in Florida may have some nematode problems with your figs Okay. there's also a, a blue Celeste and a black Celeste and uh, it, it's just a great fig. I, every, every time I see a fig that resembles Celeste, I think I got to grow it. I got to trial it to see if it maybe can perform better than any of my other varieties.
0: Well, I was going to say, too, with Celeste, it's so widely available, like you said. So I think that makes it such a good starting point for a new fig grower because you can find it.
4: Yeah, yeah you can get that fig, all all three of these, you can get them for like 10 bucks a piece.
0: Well, let's move on to... Violette de Bordeaux.
4: Yeah, Violette de Bordeaux is, a, is another one. And this is a French fig that's been in the United States for a long time. So the name implies, I guess, that it comes from the Bordeaux region of France. So it's a very popular fig in Europe. It's withstood the test of time. And I think actually Hardy Chicago, my third recommendation, is that exactly. Mm. I think there are certain varieties that just travel well, that have withstood the test of time. As you know... Propagating figs is as simple as taking a branch and sticking it in the ground. Because Hardy Chicago and Violet de Bordeaux are so extraordinary in their hardiness, they're both quite hardy figs, in their productivity and their flavor. I think they just have withstood the test of time. And, of course, if they're so well-loved, Their family members are going to bring them to the States. They're going to bring them to Canada, and they're going to grow them. And then when they arrived to these places, they said, well, I've never grown figs in the United States. I've never grown figs in Canada, but I'm going to try. I'm going to plant my fig in the ground. I'm going to stick it in the ground. And I bet you anything, all these Italian immigrants, all these French immigrants, a lot of their fig trees died. Whatever they brought over didn't make it through the wintertime. What did make it through the wintertime was Hardy Chicago. What did make it through the wintertime was Vila de Bordeaux. They just do well. And of course, for me, they're the standards that I look to against all other varieties I grow.
0: Well, Ross, those are three widely available varieties, well-known varieties. And I think that's great that new fig growers know that those are three great varieties to start with.
4: I hope that, uh, All the fig growers out there will at least try one of those three, and I I know you guys won't be disappointed.
0: So I'd say to the new fig growers, try those three varieties, and then check out Ross's video, 15 Steps to Success with Figs.
4: Yes, and there's also a blog post now on our blog, figboss.com. You've got the blog post there. For anybody who wants to follow along, it's like a little printout. You can carry this with you. Any time, of the, any time of the year, you're a little lost. You don't know what's going on. If you follow these 15 steps, you can't fail.
0: Love it. Okay, thanks for hanging out with me on the segment, Ross.
4: You got it, Steve. I hope you guys uh, are happy. You're staying healthy, and uh, happy figging out there.
0: That was my chat with Ross Raddy. Connect with Ross online at figboss.com and on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, where he hangs out as Ross Raddy.
2: The Food Garden Life show is just about over for today. A big thanks to Amy Goldman and Ross Ratty for joining us on the show. And if you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on future shows, let us know and send your ideas through stephenbigs.ca,
0: Or you can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where we hang out as Food Garden Life. And you can also find Emma on Instagram, where she hangs out as Emma Biggs underscore grows. If you use Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google, you can subscribe to the podcast there. And if you like what we do, please rate us, please review us. We'd really appreciate that. You're listening to the Food Garden Life Show. I'm Stephen Biggs.
2: And I'm Emma Biggs. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Thank you for listening to the Food Garden Life Show with your hosts, Stephen and Emma Biggs, right here on Reality Radio 101.